Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And today our reading will be Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 27. As we sort of done a tour uh, through the Old Testament examples of great faith, today we're going to talk about Moses. Now, a lot of you know something about Moses. Maybe you've seen the movie but hadn't read the book. But uh, Charlton Heston, I, he was pretty good as Moses. I thought I, I remember seeing that movie right after I had become a Christian. And man, I, I was so excited about it. I was cheering it. And I heard the stories a lot in Sunday school as a child and, of course, studied them much more deeply over the years. But today, we're going to talk about how faith endures and how it makes itself known through the cho its choices to endure. And Moses will for us be a grand example of someone God worked faith in and through. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would Give us enlightenment today that your Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our understanding and the ability of our hearts to grasp the truth today. And we pray that we would be receptive and responsive and not resistant, uh, that we would focus our attention upon what your word is saying to us today, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today through the word in the church. And we pray that you may be glorified because of what the work your word will do in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses is sort of an all-star, a rock star. He's an amazing person, especially in the minds of the original audience. Uh, let me just go through a little catalog of how important Moses was. To all Jews, Moses was the greatest of all men. According to one early tradition, Moses had higher rank and privilege than ministering angels. Moses was a prophet. God communicated directly to him and testified regarding their relationship. When Moses received the law of God, his face was luminous as he came down and descended Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. He was Israel's greatest lawgiver. Virtually everything in their religion recalled his name. He was Israel's greatest historian. He authored everything from Genesis to Deuteronomy. He was considered Israel's greatest saint. 
For Scripture says, He was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. This is perhaps the most amazing thing of all to say about him because those who often have accomplished great things are anything but humble. But Moses was the humblest of the entire human race. He was uh, Israel's greatest deliverer. His feats are wonderfully chronicled through the book of Exodus. And in regard to, regard to Moses' deliverance of Israel from Egypt, his liberating work was a huge act of faith from beginning to end. And this is what the author of Hebrews focuses on in the great hall of fame of faith. So here we have an anatomy of faith that delivers others and sets them free. But to the original audience, that fledgling church, uh, urban church that was in danger of apostatizing and leaving uh, their commitment to Christ and returning to Judaism, I think the author found the faith of Moses particularly useful, and here's why. He shows us that the grand design of the letter to the Hebrews is to persuade Jewish Christians not to abandon Christ for Moses. Moses, the author shows us, aligned himself with Christ, even in disgrace. And if people really wanted to follow Moses and his example, they would have to do so as Christians, not Jews. With that said, I want you to pay a particular attention to verse 27. And I want you to see verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, which sends us all the way back to chapter 11, verse 1, the very functional definition of faith. He endured seeing him who is invisible. And the book of Hebrews is a book that focuses on one particular word, and that word is endure or endurance. It is written to a church that was tempted to give up, to chunk it all, because of persecution and suffering and extreme duress. And chapter 11 is essentially about how faith leads to endurance. In chapter 12, the author says, Looking unto Jesus, who endured the cross. Therefore, we have to learn how to endure, just as Abraham, Moses, the two major figures, both by faith, learned to endure. Both are, are, it is said of both that they did things by faith five times. Now the word endure is a Greek word, and it's a compound word made up of two words, hupo, meno, hupo, meno. And you say, okay. Well, that means, meno means to stand or stay, and hupo means to, um, uh, we get the word hyper from it. So endure is hooper or hyper stand, to hyper stand. Um, the word transliterated would be hyper stand, and to hyper stand is to plant your feet so that nothing can knock you off your feet. And that is, uh, by the way, if you watch football, and I know every single one of you do, and you love it as much as I do, 
But one thing that an offensive lineman has to learn to do in playing football is to plant his feet and not allow himself to be pushed around. Well, faith, and as endurance, is planting your feet. It's having durability. It's enduring. It's standing under pressure, under all kinds of things. And that's what this book is about. And the question arises for you, am I a durable person? Uh, we all know the Energizer Bunny, and we all want to take the batteries out of the Energizer Bunny because he's annoying. But we all used to remember, you're not as old as me maybe, but maybe you've heard about it, the old Timex commercials where it takes a licking and what? Keeps on ticking. That's kind of what endurance is. Is it possible to endure in 2018 in a throwaway culture, in a society of throwaway relationships, throwaway identities, to have a stick to to be able to endure? Because that goes against the grain of the very culture we live in. And we're always swimming upstream in this current world. But do we have it to endure? Today we want to look at Moses' life and show that the key to endurance of a long obedience in the same direction and finishing well, of standing firm and staying put and being durable. So do you want this? And if you do, this is the key. Three things I want to call your attention to. Number one, what Moses endured. Number two, how Moses endured. And number three, how we can endure. So those are the three things I want you to hang your hat on as we go through this message. What Moses endured. Now, where did Moses learn about faith anyway? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's really important. Moses, as we see in the opening verse 23, was rescued uh, during his birth. The time of Moses being born, infanticide, was practiced by Pharaoh in order to suppress the Israelites. They were growing and multiplying so fast that they were becoming a problem of logistics and management and a threat to his kingdom. And so he ordered every Hebrew male child under two years of age would be what? killed and he ordered the midwives to kill him upon delivery but Moses's father Amram and his mother Yoshebed didn't obey the king's edict why did they not Amram according to tradition had a vision or a dream in which he was instructed not to kill Moses but to put him in a basket on the Nile River and strategically located by where Pharaoh's daughter was known to bathe or get in the water so it's a safe place and we know she found him and adopted him as her own and of course Mary, uh, Miriam Moses' big sister just happened to be there she goes in with uh, um, Pharaoh's daughter and tells her that her mother could serve as a nursemaid for the child isn't it amazing in God's economy that Joshebed got paid for raising her own son under dire circumstances. But they knew he was a beautiful child. Now, I've never met a parent who had a baby that didn't think they were beautiful. And you might not have thought they were as beautiful as they think they are, but if you're a wise person, you kept your mouth shut. 
Everybody thinks their babies are the beauty, most beautiful children in the whole world. Mine were. Uh, but that's not what this is talking about. This beauty that Moses had meant that he was marked for something great. They knew because of the vision God had given them that this was a special son. Even Amram, when he had the vision, claimed that Moses was going to be the, the one, the one coming who would deliver the people out of Egypt. That they had been there over 400 years and that uh, the time had been fulfilled and that a deliverer was to come. But Moses, where did Moses get his faith? Where did it come from? His mother and his father. Which should give parents in this congregation a great sense of hope. How you rear your children and how you live out your faith before your children have a greater impact sometimes than you know. And you may not see the results of it right now. Some of us claim the promise, train a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not what? Depart from it. Of course, that has to do more with how the child is bent, discovering what they're bent toward. But we can have amazing influence on our children as we covenantally regard the promises of God and rear our children, we can have hope in the promises of God. And of course, Amram and Yoshebed taught Moses the faith. Otherwise, how would he know? They must have taught him his identity of who he truly was. Because later on in his life, we see it come out. But you've got to you know that from verse 23 to verse 24, 40 years have passed. So it may have taken Moses a while to stop being the prince of Egypt and start living as an Israelite with faith in Yahweh. It took a while. But they were encouraged. By the way, Moses' life is equally divided in 40 year spans. First 40 years in Egypt. And then the next 40 years in the wilderness. So he's 80. Some of you are getting near 80 and you think it's over. Uh-uh. Moses at 80 does his greatest work in the kingdom. Leads his people out of Egypt at 80. Yeah, 80 years of age. Some of you are sitting there thinking, no way. But he did it. God called him to do it. But he had to learn and unlearn a lot of stuff. But I digress. I get off the subject. We're talking about his faith enduring. But this is sort of background for why he made the choices he made. It didn't just poof up out of thin air. There were reasons for it. And so there were four major crisis points in the life of Moses. First, he refused to be called the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, but decided to identify with the people of God. Moses was a Jew, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was brought into the court, received the most incredible training of his time. By the way, at this time, Egypt was a world power. And gathered together in Egypt were the intelligentsia of the day. And Moses received incredible training, incredible education. I mean, none of us could tie his shoes as far as to the kind of education Moses received. And he was brought into the court. He had access to all the corridors of power. He had an incredible career ahead of him, but he, uh, the most amazing thing about him was that 
He had an incredible career ahead of him, but Joseph, we know years ago, both a Jew and a prince in Egypt, had a wonderful position there, but times had changed. Pharaoh was nervous because the Jews had multiplied, and they had become so strong, he was beginning to fear them. And so he started exploiting them and oppressing them and enslaving them, and he began to beat them, and he began to exploit their labor. And Moses realized he could either be a prince in Israel, a leader, or he could be a leader in Egypt, but he couldn't do both the way Joseph had done. He knew a choice was coming. And that one day, a choice like that sort of ambushed him. He was out and he saw an, uh, an Egyptian taskmaster beating a helpless Hebrew slave. He saw it. He witnessed it. And in anger, Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster. And he buried his body in the sand. And at that point, he had thrown in his lot with the slaves. He knew a choice would come, and he decided no longer to take the advantages he had as a member of the royal court. And as hard as that would have been to do, we are told there was a second choice that happened almost immediately, and it was a more difficult choice. We are told here, if you look at your passage, you'll see by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. What does that mean? Here's what happened. The very next day, Moses suddenly realized he, he had to make a choice all over again. Only this time, it was a much more harder, difficult choice. And the next day, he discovered two Israelites fighting with one another. And he walks over to them. And he says, what are you fighting for? Stop it. Stop fighting. And then one of the guys turns to him and says, who made you a judge and ruler over us? Are you going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Suddenly, it hit Moses. He didn't get away with it. This wasn't a secret. In fact, he had, the fact that he had killed the uh, Egyptian was already public knowledge. It was out there. And he knew Pharaoh would hear about it pretty soon. But the worst thing was his own people had rejected him. They resented the idea that he had self-appointed and they were afraid of him, suddenly Moses in one day went from having two peoples to having no people. But here's why the choice was so amazing. We know enough about these kind of governments, autocratic as they are, of ancient times to know if the son of the daughter of Pharaoh kills a commoner in a tantrum and then turns to his grandfather and turns to the Pharaoh and says, I'm sorry, I don't know what got into me, but I just lost it and I just hit him once but he's dead. Well, then you would know no problem for Pharaoh, none whatsoever. Come on in. Okay, you killed a commoner. All right. Oh, well. Moses knew that he could go back, but now he realized if he stayed true to his identification with his people, he would be an outcast. He knew he would always be an outcast, and he would be the eternal fugitive from the wrath of Pharaoh who was the most powerful man at that time upon the earth. He knew he could actually go away from his principles. He could disobey his principles. He could do the wrong thing and be safe, or he could do the right thing and face absolute career suicide. To be faithful to his principles was not to become a great leader, but to become a fugitive and to run for his life in the desert. If not being killed by beast or thieves 
which is most likely he would be a fugitive endlessly from Pharaoh. He decided to do the right thing. He decided to obey, even though it meant the end of his life, career suicide, oblivion, but he did it. And of course, as he stood out there, as far as he was concerned, his life was over. He's on the backside of the desert in Nowhereville, and he's a nowhere man. Any person looking at what happened to Moses would say, this is insane. This is crazy. Here's a man with tremendous leadership skills. And a marginal group of people, his, his life at the end and everything in tatters, there he was, he's past his 40s, he's past his 50s, he passed his 60s, he passed his 70s, he got to 80 years old, there he was, a complete has-been, everything over, but then one day God shows up at the burning bush and says to him, Moses, I got a job for you. I got a job for you. And he says, you know, even though you're a member of a marginal little group of people, and even though you're a nobody, I want you to do two things for me. First of all, I want you to walk up to Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the face of the earth, and I want you to say, I'm about to take your entire free labor force from you. Hmm. Then I want you to lead out that group of people broken by years of slavery, no economic resources, no personal resources, no military resources, and I want you to lead them out even though they're going to continually fight with you, and even though you know the greatest army on the face of the earth will come after you. And Moses did it. The final crisis was when he stood on the banks of the Red Sea. And on this side was a mountain, and on this side was the sea, and on this side was the army of Pharaoh. In obedience to God's word, he took his people, he faced the ocean, and he said, let's go, forward. And he went literally into the sea, and he endured. He hyper-stood. He put his feet in the Red Sea, and he passed through it. Nobody knocked him off the feet, his feet. How did he become a man like that? It's just like Abraham. You notice every spot the tests got harder and they got worse. And every spot somehow he was able to endure and handle it. He would have never done this 40 years before that. But at every point he continued to grow in endurance and perseverance. How did he do it? Well, there are three verbs in this passage that tell us how Moses endured. Now you must not think, friends... That Christianity is the same thing as Stoicism, just grin and bear it. You must not think Christian endurance, the endurance that's offered to us here, is a kind of grit your teeth negative thing. That's not what we're looking at at all. We're told here exactly what Moses did to become the kind of person he became. And if you do the same, it can happen for you. What is it? Well, there are three things. Number one, notice it says he regarded do you see that word? That's not the best translation of that word. It's a decent translation, but not the best. He regarded. He looked at the treasures of Egypt. He looked at the reward he would have with God, and he assessed both. He assessed them. He, he calculated. He assessed the disgrace he would have faithful to God as far more valuable than all the treasures of Egypt. Assess, 
Let me tell you quickly how that works. It's not stoicism. This is not holding on. He assessed. That is a calculation word. Similar to the word Paul uses in Philippians 3.8 where he says, I had it all, I counted all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But here's the image. The image is you and I, we're lay people when it comes to something like diamonds. We're lay people when it comes to real estate. Maybe we're lay people when it comes to various things. But you go to an expert. That's why people like to watch antiques roadshows. People love that because somebody finds something that looks like a heap of junk and they walk in and some assessor looks at it and says, it's worth $6 million. Do you believe that? If you do, I got some oceanfront property in Kent. No. But they do go on the show. And things are assessed. And they see value. And that's exactly what Moses did. This is the image here that the text is using. You get an expert who knows how to assess. The expert comes in and says, well, now you know what? You think this is more valuable than this, but do you see this thing over here? Do you realize it's ten times more valuable than that is? This is ten times more useful than that is, and here's why. The expert analyzes it for you, and you say, man, I didn't know that. I'm glad you told me. Instead of going on appearances, you get an expert who assesses it and says, this is far more worthy than that is. Moses knew how to do that. Here's how he did it. It even shows you. He says he decided the treasures he would have with God are far greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin. The pleasures of sin last for a short time. Nobody here in this building is telling you there's no pleasure in sin. There is pleasure in sin, but it's short-lived. And the consequences are far greater. But let me give you the first key, and here it is. Moses knew you're only as durable as the thing you love the most. Let me repeat that. You're only as durable as the thing you love the most. Moses said, If I love something most that can never pass away, I will never pass away. If I can love something most that will last forever, I will last forever. But if I love anything that is vulnerable, I'm vulnerable. I'm as durable as that which I love most. A few years ago, I read a book by Thomas Oden, who's a philosophical theologian over at Drew University. And he had a really fascinating book on how the human heart works. It's called The Structure of Authority. You'd never know it from the title. That it, and the only reason I knew it is somebody told me about it. This is how I learn everything somebody tells me about it. I'm not very original. So Odin says this. He says, every person is goal-oriented. We're born that way. You can't live if you don't have something to look forward to. Secondly, all goals compete. So you can't live unless you choose one goal as the center of value by which all other goals are to be judged, one bottom line by which all other goals are evaluated. Thirdly, he says, if you choose a finite center of value, you're always anxious. Always anxious. Even to quote him, he goes to far to, uh, so far as to say this, anxiety becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. 
He goes on to say, suppose my center of value is my health or my political party or sexual attractiveness or financial productivity. If my center of value is any of these things and when those things are under threat, and they always are if you think about it, I'm shaken to the depths. Therefore, I try not to think in order to keep my peace. That's why some people have a hard time with retirement. Because what you have done in life is the center of your universe. And when that's gone, you're shaken. Or any great loss we experience shakes us to the depths. Because sometimes it might reveal where our heart's true home is, what we truly treasure. And often that's not not Jesus, sad to say. But, suppose my center of value is my health, or as I said, my political party, or my sexual attractiveness, or financial productivity. If my center of value is any of these things, and they're under threat, then I'm shaken to the depths. Therefore, I try not to think about it to keep peace. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you choose anything but God, Anything but an infinite source of value, center value, you're shakable. You cannot hyperstand. You cannot hooper-minnow hyperstand. Can't do it. You're shakable. He was saying, of course, that I will be as durable as the thing I love the most. If I decide the most important thing in all the universe is to have somebody to love me, I will do whatever it takes to get somebody to love me. If it takes obeying the Ten Commandments, I'll try. If I have to disobey the Ten Commandments to get somebody to love me, then that is the center of my value. That's what I really care about. That's what I really bleed when you cut me. You're as durable as that person you have banked everything on. That person is not durable. That person is a sinner. That person is frail. That person is fragile. And if you do the same thing, as he said, your political party, your sexual attractiveness, your productivity, Moses figured it out. He assessed and he thought about it. This endurance, this strength Christianity gives is not something that just comes automatically. You have to think. You think it up. You assess. You calculate. You reason. You think it out. You say, yeah, these things are happening, but they're nothing compared to this. This is what I live for. And you're as durable as that thing you love the most. That's what gives you stability and durability and endurance in the Christian life. And that's why some people are so wishy-washy. Some people are so um, flighty. <laughs> Christianity gives us something more. The second thing I want you to notice about how Moses endured was he chose to suffer, or that is, he chose to be mistreated. No, 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 he, d he didn't look for suffering, but he decided to obey, even though obedience entailed suffering. Did you hear that? Moses didn't look for suffering. He chose to obey, even though it entailed suffering. And he didn't know why. When it looks like to obey God and do the right thing is going to bring suffering, the great temptation is to red pencil God's script for my life. I don't want to be a martyr, and I don't want to hurt. 
In other words, Moses says, you know what? I went out on a limb for these people. I risk everything for these people. What a bunch of ungrateful jerks. Did you hear that? Moses uh, is amazing. He said, why should I be faithful to God now? Because to be faithful to God now means utter oblivion. That's a waste of all the talents I have. Now you think about it from a human point of view. Here's the one Hebrew in the whole world who has the connections, has the knowledge, has the training, has the ability, and who has the intellect. They need him, that is the people of Israel. They rejected him, and now it's a complete waste. So he says, maybe if I obey God, it's a waste. He decided to obey God anyway. And did God ruin his life? Did he ruin his life? No. Moses didn't realize until afterwards. We never realize till we obey through suffering. He didn't realize he wasn't ready to be a leader. He needed two levels to be prepared to be a leader. The first level was he had to have great training in Pharaoh's court. But the second thing he had to do was go out and live with simple people. If he's ever going to lead people, he had to understand them. Not only that, he needed to be humbled. And killing the Egyptian showed amazing arrogance. If Moses had tried to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt by killing the Egyptians one by one, they'd still be there. But God had a different plan for him. Sent him to the school called the backside of the desert for 40 years. Some people says it takes you the first 20-something years of your life to get educated and the next 40 to get over. Now, I'm not against education. I'm all for it. I haven't always been all for it. I was already a pastor when I married Pam, and she kept telling me, you know, I think you ought to finish school. I think you ought to go to seminary. And I looked at her and said, well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon didn't go to school. She looked back at me and without flinching said, You are not Charles Haddon Spurgeon. <laughs> now that hurt my feelings for about 30 seconds. Because I was an overconfident knucklehead. <laughs> but God has to humble us. And we don't like being humbled. We don't. But he was... Equipped in every way, but he had to understand them. He had to be humble. A prince in Egypt maybe in that time could have a fit and kill somebody in a snit, but a prince in Israel cannot do that. They were afraid of him, that is, Israel, and rightly so, because he needed to be humbled. He needed to learn self-control. He thought he was ready to lead, but he was not ready to lead. It would have been a disaster. In other words, here's the second key to endurance. When it looks like obedience to God leads to disaster, obey anyway, because obedience actually takes you away from disaster. At least disaster you cannot yet see. You want to know how to become an enduring person? Do you know how to get strength? Over the years, if you obey in spite of suffering... If you obey in suffering, if you obey even if it brings suffering, you'll see that, and the more you see it, the more enduring you will become. The more durable you become. It takes years to develop, but eventually you see it. And lastly, we're told Moses saw him who was invisible. The third key is Moses saw him who was invisible. How did he do that? 
I think for him, all that is meant was like Psalm 16 where it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What Moses was doing was he was reminding himself constantly of who God was. He was seeing that which is unseen. He was continually seeing God, and that means he disciplined himself to remember who God was and who God is. Do you know how he does that? He does it this way. He says, what makes me think I'm wiser than God? It looks like a disaster. It looks like the Red Sea is never going to open up. It looks like this will never be any better, but God is wise. He knows better than I do. Do I think I know better? He reminded himself of who God was, and because he was continually being overwhelmed by the wisdom of God, he persevered. We can see somebody Moses couldn't see. That's why... You need to read your Bible. And you need to read your Bible in such a way as to learn who God is and what His wisdom is about. And if you want to endure, you want to hyperstand, you want to be able to persevere and stick to it and stay with it, no matter what winds or storms or difficulties or trials or suffering or hardships come your way, you got to know who God is. You have to know who God is. Or you will go crazy. I'm not saying you'll ever figure him out. You won't. But you will learn enough about him to stand and not fold up. When difficulties come, which inevitably they will. The reason Moses was able to do that, the reason that he became a great man, the reason he was able to calculate and assess, and the reason he was able to choose and eventually get to the place where he was able to look at the Red Sea and say, Charge! And if you want to get there, if you want to get that kind of character condition, you have to assess, you have to choose, and you have to learn to see the wisdom of God. Moses did that, but we, right now, see more wisdom than Moses did. How? You want to know why? We see someone in Moses, we know some, somebody left a much greater palace than Pharaoh. And we know somebody who came to his own, and his own received him not. And we know somebody who was rejected by his own people. But they rejected him in a far deeper, profound, and radical way than Moses was rejected. They killed him on the cross. We see wisdom in Moses because we see incredibly God's wisdom was such that the very rejection of Moses led to the salvation of those people. It meant oblivion for him, and yet redemption came out of it. So when we face problems we have in front of us, do we really think we're wiser than God? Look, Lord Jesus, we might say, I have rejected you, yet you were faithful to me, and I'm not going to reject you again. Look, Lord Jesus, you were faithful, though it looked... Like it meant oblivion, it meant redemption, and I'm going to be faithful, though it looks like disaster, but I know it'll be redemption. We see something Moses didn't see. We should be able to take on the Atlantic Ocean, not the Red Sea. The great hymn writer, William Cowper, let me tell you a little bit about William Cowper. 
William Cowper had clinical depression before they even knew how to diagnose it. And that guy wrote some of the best hymns in our hymn book. Amazing. You know who tried to cheer him up and spent a lot of time with William Cowper? John Newton. John Newton was, a, he wrote Amazing Grace, he was a slaveholder. But John Newton says, you know, I'm a great sinner. He said, but the best good news is he's a greater lover. He's a greater savior than I am a sinner. But Newton was always counseling. I have a book in my library on how John Newton tried to encourage William Cowper. But in your bulletin, the quote of the day on the first page is what I'm about to read to you. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. His purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Wouldn't hurt you to read that at least once a day. The older you get, maybe three times a day. Let's pray. Father, we are sorry that we're not as, as enduring as even Moses was, even though we see what he didn't. And though he vaguely knew about Jesus, we see one who has saved us through his rejection, saved us through his giving his life for us, saved through the most incredible disaster because of your wisdom. We pray, Lord, you would help us to see if we love you centrally we will be as durable as Moses we pray you would show that if we obey you completely we will become everything you want us to be and if we look to the one who died on the cross rejected for us but saving the ones who rejected him we will know how to look at the greatest disasters and the greatest obstacles and walk right through them we ask you to teach us how to endure. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give today as those who are hyper standing in faith. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.